on Jerry VI, there is one side, how can existing company integrate Jerry VI in their product to make their value proposition even more compelling? And then there is what are the technology and the companies that couldn't happen before, but can happen now because you have Jerry VI. Welcome, everyone. On today's episode, I have a good friend, Philippe Pateri from Axel. We have several investments in common. So this is a long overdue episode talking about all the decisions that we made jointly together over the years, the overlap there. But as with every episode, we do a little bit trying to understand the man behind the legend, where it started, where it is today, and thoughts on things like AI, regulation, cybersecurity. So welcome, Salim. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. So today, I want to start off with your background on McKinsey and Bessemer. You graduated from school and you worked as a consultant and then you moved into venture. But maybe walk us through how that journey looked like, why that transition, you know, you're originally from Western Europe and then how do you ended up making all the moves around? Just tell us a little bit about that background. Sure. So I was born and raised in France, as we can tell from the accent. Engineering background, decided to start my career with McKinsey. And was lucky in terms of timing because I started in 98, which in Europe was when the dot-com boom really started. I mean, the dot-com boom was short-lived. In Europe, it was from 98 to 2000, 2001. I was lucky to just start my professional career at that time. And... So that gave me the opportunity as a, a young consultant at McKinsey in Paris to work actually on a lot of technology projects. And so I brought several business plans for e-commerce company. I don't know if you remember at the time, like every company wanted to have an e-commerce business plan. So we did a lot of that. I actually worked for a company that was called Opodo, just kind of the online travel agency, which was actually a project that McKinsey put together with 11 or 12 European airlines. And the idea was to build basically an online distribution for all these airlines companies. And so I worked for close to a year on that project based in London. And we actually started with 45 consultants and ended up with a company of 60, 70 employees and that no consultants at the end. So that was probably the least efficient way to build a company. <laughs> I have, uh, you know, I've seen, but the company went on and was successful and was bought out, I think several times by different P firm. Uh, but that was kind of my foray to tech and that opened my eyes about what was happening in technology. And I said, well, this is where I want to work and spend the rest of my career. So at that point I applied for transfer to the Silicon Valley office because I was like, if I want to do tech, the one place to be, that place is Silicon Valley. So I wanted to find my way there. My transfer was approved in October 2000, which was, as you can imagine, very nice for it to be approved, but also very irrealistic in terms of timing. Then everything crashed. And so my transfer got postponed. And I ended up, I think in life, you, to, you need to be lucky. You need to create your own luck, but you also need to be lucky. And I was very lucky that in 2003, there was partner from Silicon Valley who transferred to the Paris office. And that person, when he was in Silicon Valley, was in charge of the transfer to that office. 
And so I knew the head of the price office well, he was in a tech practice as well, works, I did many projects with him. And so I asked him to say, well, now this is a time to make it happen. And so he asked that partner to help me and we made that transfer work. And it's interesting because that partner from Silicon Valley stayed at McKinsey for just a year, and then he went on to join Nokia. And during that year, he helped me transfer. And then I moved to Silicon Valley, went on to serve a lot of technology clients in the Valley. And after three or four years there, I got my green card. I was like, okay, now, well, you know, McKinsey and consulting, that was great experience. But now I really want to do something closer to technology, closer to companies. And I wanted to combine my passion for technology, for investing and for working with young technology companies. And I thought about that. I think natural conclusion for me was that I needed to go into venture. That's where I kind of started to look for um, venture role. And I was lucky at the time to meet the Byron Dieter at Bessemer. And he was uh, looking for someone to help him build their cloud practice. And I'd done a lot of work in software. And I was like, well, that's fantastic. So I left McKinsey and joined Bessemer and started my journey in venture and never regretted it. It's been an awesome journey for the past like 16, 17 years now. Yeah. So you've been in venture a while and you brought with you those years of consulting experience. And before we get into individual sectors, I think if I can force you to pick the top three lessons you've learned over those years, what would those be? Top three lessons that you learned from your entire career in venture? It's a good question. I think the first lesson for me, which I think venture, at the end of the day, venture is all about making investments, right? So I'm trying to see what I've learned in terms of making successful investments. And overall, I think one of my learning has been that, you know, sometimes my aperture has been a bit too narrow in terms of the way I'm selecting company. And so I'm like, well, you know what, if you had invested in 30% more companies. So if I look at the time, companies that were, I spent a lot of time and ended up not doing an investment. If I made this investments, I think I probably would have had a lot more success in my portfolio. Right. So I think that now there's always a question of, well, would I be able to manage that many investment, et cetera. But overall, I think. To me, the learning here is, you know, there are some companies where you probably look at them and see, well, right now they're probably not meeting the bar, but maybe the bar was a bit too high. And there are a lot of things that you cannot predict in the way these companies are evolved that really makes them successful. So I think to me, that's one learning, which is trying to really push myself when I think about an investment. There is what you can see today and then there is what it can become tomorrow and trying to find the right balance between both of them, I think is something that is super important, not very easy to do, but something that I try to pay a lot more attention to in terms of how I weigh the, these two elements. I think that's for me one key learning. The second learning, which relates more as how do you help company be very successful? And I found that. When you have great companies, usually it's never up and straight to the right. There is always some phase where it's going very fast and phase slow down, then it can reaccelerate. And I found that usually the main reason of companies slowing down is linked to hiring. 
meaning companies not hiring the right people at the right time. And I think the mistakes I've seen a lot of company do is to try and hire someone when they see the needs instead of sitting down and having an org for the next 12 months and say, okay, here's how I want the org to be in six months from now and making sure that you apply the hiring so the person is here when you need the person and you don't trigger the hire when you need the person because that's how you easily can lose five, six months. And that's even more, I think, pronounced in Europe because of all the labor laws. Like in the US, you can hire potentially someone in two months, right? If you're lucky, you find the right person, they can pick the job, start in a month. In Europe, you'll find a lot of people who have three, even sometimes six months before they can join a company and that compounds that effect. So for me, this has been one of the key reasons for which companies, you know, things that can slow down company over time. So that would be, I think, the second thing that I've learned. And I would say that the third thing, which I think have been something that you realize looking back at kind of 15 years of venture and the different cycle that at the end of the day, it is all about the right trends. And you would see that tides will carry all boats. And, and to me, it's really about understanding of what is the next tide. And if you pick the right tide, I think then you have a lot more flexibility in terms of picking the right companies. But if you have the wrong tide, you can still have a successful company, but then it is a very, very narrow set of companies who are going to be very, very successful. So to me, if I reflect about the past 15, 16 years, it's kind of what we see would be my top three learnings. Yeah. And that last one on tides, it's a very good one. Reflect a little bit on the investments you've led in Excel, DocuSign, Sneak, UiPath, Chain Analysis, and maybe you can just walk through the things that made you feel like they were at the right time, because it's not always obvious that they were at the right time. We just did this investment in Synthesia together. And one of the things that is happening right now with regards to AI is that ChatGPT and OpenAI have really cracked the door open on that. And that was only six months ago that a lot of ML companies probably didn't even have awareness of what was coming down the road, right? And so I'm just curious as to your point of view is, how do you know the right tide's there? That's a very good question because, you know, being too early is the same as being wrong. Okay. That's the reality. And so if you take, for example, UiPath, it's a company that had a very interesting journey. It was founded as consulting companies and can kind of find its way into RPA. And when we started discussing with, with the company and led the Series A in 2017, I think we're at the point we're looking at cloud and SaaS, we've been looking at that sector for probably 2006, 2007, when we, that's when probably really started when I was in the Valley. I think the first iteration of companies were basically taking existing software application, which were on-prem and putting them in the cloud with a ton of benefit. And so at that time, I would say we were looking at the analog on the on-prem side and you kind of this is roughly the size of the market. This is the momentum. This is how you go to market. And that's how we were thinking about the opportunities. Um, but then there was this new thing that happened in, in 2014, 15, 16, which is now how can you do actually more 
with cloud? Like, how can you do things that were not done before and bring that level of process automation to the next level? And that's what we were really looking at. And then when we looked at RPA, we looked at it, it was like, wow, this is something that is totally new that no one has done before. And that is bringing level of automation that no one has seen before. And that happened at a time where, you know, well, you look at, you know, between 2000 and kind of 2012, 14, a lot of savings in the enterprise were done through offshoring and say, okay, well, what if we offshore everything to Asia and India? That's how we drive savings. And then you get to 2014, 15, and you're like, well, once we offshore everything, we can offshore. And, you know, now the cost of living is increasing in India. Like, where are these savings going to come? So that, there was really a need at the time for that next level of basically processed automation to drive more productivity in the enterprise. And that's where UiPath came in with a technology that actually no one had done before. There were only a couple of companies with Blueprint automation anywhere in that space, still all were at the very early stage. And so to me, when I look at all these trends going together, I'm like, wow, there is enough here to start to build the next platform to drive enterprise automation. And RPA being kind of the first step into it. That's how we're thinking about it. So that's kind of the, the thesis. And then to validate that thesis, we call all the partners from UiPath, like the SI that we're working with them. And it was like, they were all excited, all investing a lot in building their RPA practice at the time. And you're like, okay, well, the ecosystem is investing in it. The enterprise and the customers want it. They have the right technology, so all the right ingredients for the fire to start taking off. So that kind of how we thought about it at the time. Yeah. So you saw all these things moving peripherally, and then of course you see where it's headed. But when you look at where things are headed, sometimes you know it depends how much you factor what that time frame is, right? Because for three years, four years, you can see a trend, but then something like OpenAI comes out the other end, and then it shifts how people are using technology internally. And so I wanted to ask you on this point of RPA, but then moving into AI, it's what made you back Synthesia? Because this is a whole new wave of things which could disrupt how things were done in the past and architecturally change everything. How do you reconcile investments that you've done in the past and how they're affected by new technology? But how did you make a decision in something like Synthesia, which is so early in many ways in a trend? Of course, we're investors as well. So we believe that this is a game-changing technology, but I'd love to hear your thesis on Synthesia and how it impacts other businesses. Sure. Yeah, we're happy to go into that. Like I'm a big fan of Synthesia and what they have done. I think it's super exciting technology and team. So if you look at just generative AI, because that's where it all starts from, I think we're seeing, and I'm seeing generative AI, for me, it is a breakthrough that is as important as cloud was in 2006, 2007, or as the iPhone was, I think it was 2007, the first one, which kind of turned the phone into a computing platform. Like, I, I think these were fundamental tectonic shifts in technology. And I think that generative AI is at least it's going to bring the same level of disruption and opportunities. Now, I think for me, there are two different things on generative AI. There is one side, how can existing company integrate generative AI in their products to make their value proposition even more compelling? And then there is what are the technology and the companies that couldn't happen before, but can happen now because you have generative AI. And so if I look at a company like UiPath, they have always integrated 
evolve from RPA to full automation platform. And this new AI technology is just a better way for them to continue to automate more processes. So I'm very hopeful that JerryVI is going to bring a lot to a lot of existing companies and products. Now, when we look at Jenny, we're also obviously looking at what are the unique business models that can emerge from that technology. And so we've been looking at the space for a year now, and we looked at the different layer of the stack. So you have, obviously you start with the foundational models, then you have the apps that are built on top of it. You have the management layer to make everything work together. And when we looked at Synthesia, we're like, okay, what is, there's been a ton of models that have been on the tech side. A lot of companies have been built on top of these models. And so the question on the tech side is like, how can you really be differentiated? Because that's what everybody's doing. That's where OpenAI is investing a lot. Then you look at images and to some extent images a bit less crowded, but still a lot of different models and great companies. And then we looked at Synthesia and what they're doing and well, what they were doing is something nobody else was doing. Well, nobody else, not true. There are 12 or 15 other startups that are trying to do the same thing. But it's not that there is a big foundational model out there who can say, okay, now I can do exactly what Synthesia is doing. And the reason for that is like when you look at the technology, it is something that is pretty unique by itself because it starts with human, a uh, human avatar. It's not about taking existing video of human emotion and trying to put that in another lane to totally change it. But uh, all the mechanics, et cetera, are driven by the human. Here, there's nothing. And then suddenly you generate a human that is speaking, which is something that is extremely hard to do. And there isn't a multinational model out there who says, well, this is what I do. And I've been trained on, you know, zillion of data that are all available out there. I think uh, data all that is actually very hard to acquire because it deals with humans. So there's a lot of implication about privacy. You also need different angle, high definition, et cetera. So this is something where like, wow, the data is not very easy to acquire. And I think Synthesia has done a very good job at being able to access this data, have their own research team, refine and build their own model. So there is here a real differentiation. And obviously privacy is something that is super important for the company. So all the data that you're using is licensed. So you don't have the issue that you have with a lot of generative AI algorithms that have been trained on a lot of data. Some of it may or may not have been properly licensed. I think for Synthesia, it's been a core priority for all the founders to make sure that everything that they use is properly licensed. So to me, it all started with the technology and it felt like they had real differentiation through access to proprietary data, specific research team focusing on a problem that, you know, is, is not something that a ton of companies have been able to solve or can be sold with a very big and large model. So to me, that was something that was very important. Now it's like great technology. You want to see, well, what is it? be, what is it doing for the world, for consumer, for enterprise? And what I really like about Satisha is that they were laser focused on the enterprise and saying, well, how can this technology bring real value to the enterprise? And there are two ways that you can look at their technology. I mean, one way is to say, well, if you're producing a video by using Synthesia, you can reduce the cost of that video by pretty much 95%. 
And why? Because suddenly you just have to type text to create a video instead of having someone in the studio. If you pronounce something the wrong way, you have to redo everything from scratch. And then if you want to change one thing, because let's say, you know, video to present a product and suddenly there's a new feature in the product. So you need to update the video. So you have to redo everything from scratch. It's in GCR and you can just basically change a word in your text and then generate new video. So if you use video, production costs 95% less. Now, the other way to look at it is say, well, but if you don't, if you can't do video today because it's too expensive, you're using a PowerPoint or documents. But unfortunately, people are not very good at reading documents. They're much better at watching videos. And so the several, you know, and I think that is a large part of the vision say, well, can we change every document, every PowerPoint, every PDF into a video that makes it a lot more engaging and make the content rich, easier to understand and better to train people. And that's what they're doing, which is saying, well, let's take all the content out there and see how we can make video. And to me, that approach makes a ton of sense because if you look at the world today, one thing that keeps growing is the number of minutes of video watched. If you look at the young generation today, they're on YouTube, they're on TikTok, everything is about video and all the stats showing that the number of minutes of video by human is actually growing and keeps growing over time. And so the idea of bringing this new video to the enterprise to me is something that kind of makes a lot of sense and where you look at it and the potential is unbounded. So that's the part which is very exciting. Then there is the third element, which is you have a great product great technology, you have a market, you can really add a lot of value for it, but then how do you market it and make it usable? And I think that's where Synthesia has been, you know, very good. And I think a lot of, I would say, JI companies are great technology, but still trying to find a market. This is a JI company that have found a market, a very good, very decent revenue at scale, growing super fast and with very strong go-to-market model which is based on kind of PLG adoption coupled with enterprise sale that is working super effectively. So if you look at these three things, to me, it was like, wow, this is a great combination. And then the other thing which comes on top, which is how is the founding team <laughs> to make all this work. And, uh, you know, Victor and Steven, I mean, you spend an hour with them, and you know that these are guys that you want to back. So to me, this kind of how I would summarize the investment thesis. And we did several calls with our customers and we heard an amazing story of how companies were using that technology and the kind of impact it was having. For example, I was talking to an automotive manufacturer who is shipping every month several documents to their dealership with all the updates on the different cars. And that translated into a lot of calls into the call center because people just don't read documents or Maybe they think they read it, but they don't really remember everything. And then yeah. the change by operating video and suddenly the number of calls the call centers going down. Yeah. Uh, so it's just like one example, but there are you know, a lot of examples like that showing how the technology can be super impactful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's very, very thoughtful response to Synthesia and why now. One of the things that I want to revisit is that you talked about the lessons learned. You talked about you, you matured and understood how to best help a company become successful. And when you look at this new wave of Gen AI companies, they have unique challenges that are of the times. And I'm curious as to how you would adapt or what kind of thoughts you have about what it takes to help a company in the Gen AI space going forward be successful because of all the implications that come with 
what those technologies can do? Yeah, that is a very good question. I think, as you say, I think part of it is a lot of things we do to help companies in general. And part of it is very specific to JNAI company. And let me start with a part that I think is more specific. The one thing which is interesting about and different about JNAI, it's something that I've never seen in my career before, is that this is a technology that is driven by world-class leading research. And usually if you look at the history of technology, there is always like multi-year gap between what the top-notch scientists are working on in the research paper and when this is applied into a company. And so that's why no one ever knew the top research scientists at FAIR or at, you know, at DeepMind or at Apple, right? No one had ever heard about them. And certainly with Jared EVI, we're getting to a point where the leading research is directly applied in the enterprise. And certainly the researcher who have been in the back room that no one was talking about, they end up at the forefront, talking to founders, talking to companies. And to me, that is something that is precedented because I've never seen that in the, at least in my, you know, 15, 16 years of venture and experience. But so what does this mean? That means that for technology, like generative AI company, certainly it's not about R&D, which is mostly engineering and then products. Now you really have research. Like it's fundamental research within a company, which is, if you think about it, like who would have thought like in venture, you would have startups with a real research team, right? And that's something that's totally different. So now suddenly you're like, how can I help the company build a top research team? And so on our side, that means what do we need to do? That means we need to have a relationship with all these researchers. And that's what we've done at Excel for the past six, seven months. We have identified all the top researchers, especially in personal, I've been focusing a lot on Europe. So all the top researchers in Europe, we've been inviting them to different dinners and events, start building the relationship. And then so we can make introduction of, you know, this top researcher or two our founders. And that make it what we've done with Synthesia, which hopefully fingers crossed, is also going to have a big impact. So to me, that is one area that is very different. The other area, which is also different, is access to data and licensing of data. That is, typically, it's not the first thing when you invest uh, in a technology company, say, where are you going to find data to build your product? This is not a problem that usually you, have, you build software, you build cyber company, it's all about the technology that you're building, software that you're building, how you bring it to market. And here, certainly it's like, well, you have a research team, but for this research team to be successful, to have access to a lot of data to be able to train your model. So how do you access these data? And how do you make sure that everything is properly licensed? How does this fit into the regulatory framework, which obviously is very early and fuzzy right now. So you need to kind of play into a space that is not very defined, start to understand what are what risk you're wanting to take because you think that's the direction the legislation is going to go or other things that you don't want to take because you're sure that's not going to fall in the legislation and don't want to be in trouble in the future. So being at the forefront of understanding what is happening on all the regulatory front and be able to feed that back to companies and have this discussion with the founders of how to set the proper strategy in an environment that is very uncertain. I think this is something that is totally new and different that we've been working on and 
if you have looked at my LinkedIn profile, published a video, you think Synthesia, which is interesting about what I've been kept, summarization of the EU AI Act. You know, it's a three minute video. It got a ton of views, but it really showed the interest of the community for what's happening on that front. And that's an area where we can really help. Yeah, so I agree with that. Just to double click on that point, one of the things that is emerging to me is a clear thing that investors are going to have to have as a sort of an additional voice in board meetings and in shareholder meetings is this perspective on what regulation is, but not just regulation. Maybe I haven't told you the story, but early days when we back Synthesia, one of the first conversations we had with Victor and Stefan was building out what is their code of ethics. I think every company in the space is going to have to think about that. And Synthesia have a page on their website that goes through the four values that they have on the subject. They put people first always. They talk about the content moderation process that they have. They always talk about that there is an explicit permission that needs to happen from the image and likeness of somebody before it's used. And of course, their collaboration with media organizations and governments, research institutions. And so I think a large part of what investors are going to have to do that's new in this new generation is helping calibrate that. And as you said, calibrating it, not just in terms of regulation that is coming down, but also from a brand stewardship point of view, like you can't just be distracted, right? Yeah, I totally agree. And I think CTC has been at the forefront of pushing for regulatory framework and being laser focused on moderation. I mean, they had avatars and well-known public figures and also a lot of people who, and your avatar is kind of your digital representation. So you don't want your avatar to say anything you don't want your physical person to say. And so that is very important to have a very strong moderation, very strong security around the use of these avatars. And I think we're just at the very beginning of the journey. To me, the thing is, I didn't mention it, but one of the reasons behind the investment, why we've been like super impressed by what they've been doing is just like, we looked at one avatar a year ago, an avatar today, and you look at the progress that they have made and just within a year. And if you kind of not even extrapolate, we just draw a straight line and you'll say, why are we going to be in three, four years from now? And you say, you're not going to be able to tell. VR, AR, my friend, VR, AR, we're going to, we're going to visualize right here. We're going to have an interaction with them. It's everything I wanted to do in Snow Crash and every other science fiction novel I've ever watched, right? So <laughs> it'll be interesting times for sure. However, on that point of interesting times, I wanted to talk a little bit about the implications on cybersecurity. Now you guys, you in particular have had some amazing investments in cybersecurity, including Snake. And for those of you that aren't following Philippe's blog, you can find it at Cracking the Code. I'm going to nudge him to publish again because he's got some great pieces, but it's been a little bit since you, you published your last one. But one of the more recent ones, you're unpacking the cloud security and compliance stack. And the irony of this is, this was written before all this explosion of Gen AI. You outline the stack as infrastructure layer, identity layer, application layer, and data layer. And I'm just curious now that we're talking about Gen AI, first of all, would you add another layer? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe just it's an application. But what are the things that you're looking for now in cybersecurity in light of this explosion of potentially damaging technologies, both in terms of authentication, in terms of the speed of code can be written? Maybe just walk us unpack what your thesis on cybersecurity is right now. Yeah, obviously we're very focused on the impact of generative AI on what does it mean for cybersecurity? 
And what does it mean for companies who want to leverage charity VI? And I think there's going to be different aspects of it. I think the first aspect, which is, well, if you want generative AI to flourish within organization, you need to leverage your own data. And for that, you need to make sure that your data is perfectly secure, but that also you need what type of data you can use and what type of data you can't use and who can have access to the results, if, you know, infer from this data, who cannot have access to the result infer from this data. So to some extent, if you're the CEO of a company and you ask the question to one of your LLM uh, application, you're going to get an answer. But if you're, you know, four level down, you should have the same answer because you're not going to be able to leverage the same data. So it basically is going to require a new understanding of how data is actually classified within an organization. And so for me, it all stops with this data layer. And that's why a year ago, we're very focused on the data layer led the Series A in Sierra and, you know, a year later, so a week ago, we announced like we led the Series B in the same company. And obviously, even if you need a side journey of AI, I think the data layer in the cloud is something that is fundamental, very important that companies, this is like a top priority for CISO right now. And what Sierra, Sierra has done is basically build a layer that lets you identify at a very granular level, where is your data, what kind of data you have. And what is the security posture around this data? And obviously with generative AI now, the need for this is growing exponentially. So I think that is one aspect of it where we're super focused on. Now, there's a question of, okay, now what is the next step? Cyber and generative AI. Well, you like, you can improve productivity, right? Because generative AI into cyber product is going to lead to productivity improvement. So we're looking at all the companies leveraging generative AI to improve your performance of your stocks and how you can automate a lot more tasks. And you have companies like Snake who are obviously incorporating now all this technology into their product. And then there is a second aspect, which is what does this mean for the attacker? And then therefore, what do you need to defend against it? I think the part which is a bit scary, right, is you look at what attackers are very good at leveraging the next generation technology to perform their attacks. And so if you look at the power of generative AI, what does this mean for an attacker? It means that instead of an attacker directly attacking the company, now the attacker is going to leverage an LLM to attack a company. And what does this mean? It means that first, the attack is going to be much faster because the ability to iterate from a machine is much faster than the ability to do it from a man. And two, the leverage you get is much larger, so the attack surface is much larger. So that means that in the future, you're going to attack that are going to happen much faster on a much larger scale. So what does this mean? It means that for the defense, uh, I mean, historically, the defense was manned against man. Like you have one attacker, you have a defense, and you have people who say the defense, they are good enough, they can stop the attacker with the right tool. But now if it's a machine attacking, then it has to become machine against machine. And so the next level of cyber warfare is going to be basically operator commanding machines to attack and defend at the same time. And that's creating a totally new paradigm for security. So that's, I think, another level where we're trying to figure out, say, well, what are the new tools that companies can adopt to basically help defend themselves against that kind of attack? So that's another layer. And then there is even another layer around LLM models. And you say, well, now that you're 
have application-based LLM. The question out there is, can the application protection tools, uh, are they going to be enough or do you need something specific to protect LLM apps? Because then suddenly you can have different type of tags, including prompt injection, et cetera. And so do you need a new kind of cyber applications layer to protect against that or can existing tools incorporate different technologies to solve that problem? So that's also something where we're looking into. Yeah, it's, it's complicated, absolutely complicated. And I think there's near-term opportunities, and then there's obviously the longer, more existential ones. The near ones that are particularly scary are is authentication, authentication in any sort, right? Authentication, both voice or video, but how that's used for social engineering, that fascinates. We've actually just made a few investments, which are too early for you guys, maybe, but they're entirely on analyzing the video and audio with a view that it can show different things. Just the way that as a human, you can be like, that doesn't feel right. It's the, I doesn't feel right technology. So we're very much in agreement here in that it's an area. So um, just to conclude, one of the things I'd like to sort of end with is advice that you can give founders. I mean, you know, you've led so many great investments within Excel. You know, you focus on cloud computing enterprise, marketplace businesses, and, you know, you write and break down why you've invested very beautifully. What are the takeaways that you could give founders to know when they're ready for you to look at them, but also that will make them really stand out as a successful company? So, I mean, on the first question, I would say that we do anything from a million dollar seed to $200 million growth investment. So I think we can speak to founder at any stage of their journey. We're even speaking to people who are thinking about founding a company in the face of ideating and helping them. So I think on that, I would say we're open to any founders and they shouldn't think that they need to be ready to speak to us. Any founder who think about starting a company, who has started a company looking for funding, should feel ready to speak to us. I want to emphasize this because I think that is a very important point. Now, in terms of what advice I would give to the founders, I think the first one is really be passionate about what you're doing because at the end of the day, success is going to come from the passion and the vision. And to me, one of the key things I look into when I speak to a founder is like, what has been the driving motivation to start the company? What do they want to achieve? What is the vision behind the company? And I think you know, it's important to think about what is the problem that you want to solve today? Like, where does it start? with something that is well-defined. And then where do you want to be in five, six, seven years from now and turn into something bigger with a broader impact? I think this is something for founder that is very important kind of thing. What is the journey going to look like? And obviously you need to have a strong starting point and the starting points need to have a well-defined problem, well-defined solution, providing a good uh, RI uh, to whoever the consumer or the customer is. And then how can that feed over time into something that is broader? To me, that is something that is very important and really start with the passion. The second thing I would say is the point I made earlier in the podcast, but be very thoughtful about who to hire and when to hire and always think forward, right? Think about where do you want to be 12 years from now? What do you need to get there on a rolling force basis and make sure that you don't wait too much to hire the people 
that you need because that's what is going to enable you to really scale over time. And then the third element, and I had a very good discussion with Danielle from UI Pass at Saster London a couple of weeks ago. And I was asking, so one of the things which was very striking with Daniel is that he always had very ambitious goals. And the company went to grow from five to 45 million to 175 million. So, you know, and to get there, he had the targets were when he invested, he said, well, I want to, you know, 50 million this year. He's like, Daniel, you know, if you do 20 or 45, that's going to be good enough. He's like, no, but I think I can do 50 and he did 45. And then the year after it's like, well, I can do 100. He did 175. So the question is like, well, it's great. You need ambitious goals. But you need goals that also you're, you know, are going to be realistic because, you know, if you set a goal at 50 and you end up at 12, then it doesn't really feel like a goal. And so understanding how do you stretch the goal, make it ambitious, make it bold, but still achievable so you can motivate your team to go and get there. I think to me, that is something that is hard to do. And that's the difference between bold and crazy. And for founder being able to find that limit, I think is something that is very hard, but I think is something that is also a key factor of success. And if you look at all the outliers we had in our portfolio, I mean, these are founders who are very good at defining and being bold, uh, but without being too crazy in a way that would demotivate everyone. Yeah. And I'm not saying it is easy to do. I think it is very hard to do, but I think that is something that is really worth thinking hard when you're a founder, see where do you want to put that goalpost? Yeah, I think it's a very good life lesson in general. I mean, I think it's hard even to have goals that are not silly, but not sandbagging your outcome either. Well, with that, Philippe, it was an absolute pleasure having you here. And for anyone who's listening who wants to learn more about Philippe, you can find him on LinkedIn. You can follow his blog on Twitter as well, I presume, Philippe. Yep. And, uh, you know, I, I run a lot of LinkedIn as well. So that's why my blog has been a bit lighter recently. I mix between both. You got to just RPA that, man. Post on LinkedIn. Yeah. the crack in the cone. Exactly. Yeah. There you go. All right, guys. Till next time. Bye. And cheers.